Right, well, good morning it's again. Again, it's good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to grab it and make your way to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one somewhere around you. We'll be on page 237 in the black hardback ones around you. If you literally don't own a Bible, then take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. While you're getting there, uh, and this may be harder for some than others, but do you remember where you used to go or where you used to stay whenever uh, like you were a, a toddler, whenever you were a preschooler? Now, if some of you may have been at, at home, you may have stayed you know, with your, your mom or your dad or whatever it may have been. But for me, uh, both my mom and my dad worked outside the home. And so for me, that meant I went and stayed with someone and it was this lady named Inez. All right, now, we called her Nessie, but she had this giant dog that I was terrified of. All right, so, I mean, she had a big chain-link fence and all that stuff, but it was this Doberman Pinscher, just, you know, I mean, it's, it was clipped and everything, and it was just ready to absolutely chew you up if it could get to you, all right? And on top of that, the dog was named Satan. I am not making this up. So my mom took me to a place where the lady's name is the same as the nickname of the Loch Ness Monster, and she has a dog named Satan. Like, Mom, what are you thinking? You know, place where they have a dog named Satan, but that's where she dropped me off every day. Had to be someone better. But at least she had on that chain link fence, there was a sign and it said, beware of the dog. And so that dog or that, that sign served as a warning to the terror that was behind that fence. All right. The sign served as a warning. First Samuel chapter 15 is kind of the same thing. It's a warning to us. It's calling out three things that we need to beware of in particular. Right? Three things that we need to be aware of if we're going to walk in faithfulness before the Lord and specifically if we're going to listen to the voice of the Lord. Because that's really kind of the theme of this entire chapter. That God delights in those who listen to His voice. And He has grace for those who don't, obviously. That's why we sing of the love of God so rich and so pure. But for those of you who are believers, God calls us to obedience. And this chapter is telling us how God delights in those who listen to His voice. And in the Bible, listening to God's voice is equal to obedience. That's what it means. To listen to the voice of the Lord is to live in obedience. And so chapter 15, just to kind of recap, bring us up to, to, you know, date if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks. This is around the year 1050 B.C. Uh, God has, well, first the kingdom of Israel has kind of rejected God. They don't want him to uh, as king over them. And so they want a king like all the other nations. And so in judgment, God gave that to them. He gave them Saul. But in mercy, he still took care of them. He did not forsake them. And so Saul, in the midst of a big looming battle that the odds were really bad, he decided that, that winning that, that battle was more important than obeying the Lord. And so he made a sacrifice that he should not have made. And in judgment, God has told him that the kingdom, like you will not have a dynasty of kings after you. But in mercy, he hasn't taken the kingship from him yet. 
in mercy, he's told him, if you will follow me, if you will trust me, it will be okay. And so we come to chapter 15, and there's this little flicker of hope. If Saul will follow God, if he will trust him, it'll be okay. And so let's see what happens. Verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Again, this is huge. It's going to be repeated throughout this chapter. It's like the theme. God delights in those who listen to his voice. And so he said, Listen to the words of the Lord. And here are the words of the Lord to Saul. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaot, same thing. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman Child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, a couple of things. First of all, if we did not do expository preaching, I would skip this verse. This is one I would not, I would not do if I just wanted to jump around. But this gives you a little bit of honesty. We don't play games. We don't jump around. We don't dodge hard things. We deal with them as they come. And so when we read this, that does not sound to us like the God of the Bible. Why in the world would God order something as brutal as this? I mean, maybe a a self-defensive war might be justifiable, but total warfare like this? Why destroy the animals? Why destroy the women and the children? I mean, for our modern ears, this sounds disturbingly like Islamic Jihad. So what's going on here? There's a couple of things we need to understand here. And the phrase there, devote to destruction, is a very specific phrase. You see it in some other places in Scripture. And it has to do with a war not of conquest, but of judgment. Of justice. And that's why they aren't to keep any spoils of war. It's not about that. It's not about conquest. It's it's about judgment. And then specifically, why judgment on these people? Well, the Amalekites were the first people to attack Israel after they came out of the exodus from Egypt. And the way they did so is they did so very brutally, ruthlessly, savagely. They would attack the back of the caravan where those who were a little slower were. So moms with small children, pregnant ladies, elderly, sick. They made a game, they made a sport out of killing them, butchering them. And so God promised destruction to them. Now as Exodus 34, 6 tells us, God is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. But as the very next verse tells us, He will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so this judgment 
is just. This is like the Nazis in a way. I mean, God would not be a good God if he allowed injustice and brutality to go on forever. And so while on the one hand, the wrath of God is terrifying, on the other hand, it's also comforting. Because it means that there is an answer from God when the helpless are abused, when evil dictators are followed, when orphans are trafficked, when babies are dismembered and murdered. When God is mocked, that there will come a day when God will say enough of this and he will step before the puny despots of the world and he'll say, I'll be your huckleberry and I'll bring a reckoning. But it's not a reckoning born out of revenge. It's a reckoning born out of love and justice and holiness. It's a reckoning born out of who he is. Holy, right, good, and loving that therefore necessarily produces wrath against sin and evil. A God who does not have judgment or justice towards those who are brutally harmed is not a God of love. And so this devotion to destruction is a local and small-scale example of the coming judgment of King Jesus. That there is wrath against sin and evil, that there is justice, that things will be set right, and whereas the horror and the judgment uh, against the Amalekites here is temporary, it will have an end. Hell does not. Hell is a place of torment forever. And friends, let's make sure we're honest with the Bible here. Jesus in the New Testament talks a whole lot more about the terrors of hell than the Old Testament does about this kind of warfare. And the point is, justice will come. But even then, it will come at the feet of our sinless Savior who died for sinful humanity. And so, if there is a, one guy put it, if there's a justice problem in the Bible, it's right there at the foot of the cross, not at the foot of any Amalekite. Jesus was sinless, yet he died for his enemies, for sinful humanity. But what about today? Is there any application for this today? Is there anything like this today? Uh, No. Israel was fulfilling a very specific and unique role, and no modern country today has this role. Not Uganda, not the Ukraine, not the United States. All right? America is not the new Israel. The new Israel, okay, God's people who are called by his name, is not America, but as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, it's the church. And our enemies are not countries and nation states. Those are our mission fields. Now, our enemy is sin and Satan and ourselves. And our weapons are Ephesians 6, 16. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Which means that part of our warfare is this time every Sunday morning. When people gather all around the world and hear the word heralded, oh, that we would pray for that war as much as we would pray for a physical war.
Because this war has eternal implications. But jumping back into the story, while we might initially find the command to devote to destruction harsh here, one thing that it's not is unclear. Very clear what Saul is to do. And so verse 4, he jumps into it. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was a Kenite, and they were kind after the Amalekites had attacked them. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And so initially, it looks like Saul's doing pretty good here, right? He shows kindness to the Kenites. In verse 7, he defeats the Amalekites. But the problem is that he's not been commanded, he's not been commanded to defeat the Amalekites. He's been commanded to devote them to destruction. And there weren't to be any spoils of victory because that's not what this was about. But Saul had other plans. He had his own plans. And that brings us to the first major truth we need to be aware of this morning. Number one, beware of self-serving selective obedience. Beware of self-serving selective obedience. Right? Like Saul sort of obeyed. I mean, he obeyed most of what God said, but it was absolutely self-serving and selective. I mean, he kept Agad alive, not because he was merciful, but because he wanted to build a name for himself, right? Having an enemy king alive in your prison was a huge status boost to the nations around you, because in those days, a lot of times they would parade out conquered kings all emaciated and in chains, proclaiming to the world, I am the king who conquers. I am the king of kings. And so Saul's all about building his own name. You'll see him in in, uh, verse 12, building a monument to himself. And then he also keeps the best of all the livestock, which in their culture was like real live walking cash. So he keeps all that. And so Saul was happy to obey God part of the way, insofar as it served him and helped him. But brothers and sisters, partial obedience is disobedience. I remember when our kids were young, we still have to trot it out every now and then, but when our kids were young, we had this little line that we would say frequently to them. Obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart. Right? That's what we're calling you to do. Obey all the way, not part of the way, all the way. Right away, not later, right now, with a happy heart. 
That's the kind of obedience that God wants from us. It's not something I need to trot out to my kids. It's something I need to trot out to myself. Joe, you are called to obey all the way. Right away. With a happy heart. In glad submission to God's kindly rule and reign over my life. But I think if we're honest here, which is what we're going to see in a few minutes, it's kind of hard to be. But if we could be, we're actually very much like Saul. We'll obey, but only to a point. Or only if it's in our best interest. We live out a self-serving, selective obedience. Like, if it's good for me, then I'll obey. But if it's not, then maybe I won't. And so sometimes then we, for example, don't tell the truth fully. We only tell the full truth when it's helpful to us, but otherwise we're okay with keeping back some elements of the truth. Now, no blatant lies here. We're not lying to anybody, but if they had this rest of the information, they may think differently, but we're going to hold that information so that we can frame the conversation, frame what we're doing to make ourselves look good and get them to believe what we want them to believe. Self-serving selective obedience. Or what about when the teaching of the Bible is unpopular and it might be costly? Are we going to bend to that so that we can preserve our job? So we can preserve our reputation? So we can preserve having people view us a certain way? Or we, I'm not talking about being rude or mean or anything like that. But just are we going to bend on the truths of Scripture to serve ourselves and be selective? Or maybe you've just been crushing it as it relates to having sound doctrine, praying, uh, reading your Bible, just, you know, living in... I mean, you're just doing a great job in your spiritual disciplines, but you don't love others as God loves them. You only love others when it's self-serving. Is that how God loves? When it's self-serving? God's love is self-sacrificing. And we're called to consider others more important than ourselves. And there's not a caveat to that. It's not selective. But so often we live like it is. Well, I'll love and serve them as long as they're not fill in the blank. Friends, while selective obedience may have the appearance of true obedience, eventually it will be found to prove who you actually listen to and follow. Not God. But yourself. And so beware of it. Fight against it. Let's keep going. Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. All right, so in response to Saul's disobedience, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Verse 11 I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. Now, when we get to verse 11, we have this language where God says, I regret. He's speaking in terms that we can understand. It means that he really does feel the pain of our current circumstances, but not that he's unaware of the future or he was unaware of the future. A quick glance down to verse 29 proves this point. It says, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. 
And so the word regret in verse 11 is not God saying, oh, you know what, Samuel, I blew it. Man, if I could just have that, if I could have a redo, I would go back and I'd, I'd pick a different king. I, I would have a different one than Saul. That is not what God is saying. Now, we say things like that because we don't know the future, but God knows the ends from the beginnings. So nothing in Saul's life has caught God off guard or will catch him off guard or by surprise. And so when we read in verse 11, that God says, I regret, it isn't depicting God as flustered by a lack of foresight, but grieved over a lack of obedience. It's not him flustered over a lack of foresight, but him grieved over a lack of obedience. It grieves God when people refuse to be his disciples. I mean, God is not a, well, you win some and you lose some type of God. Indifference is not an attribute of God. He's not a cold slab of concrete. He has emotions. But the big difference is that unlike us, who are so often controlled by our emotions, God is always in control of his emotions. He rules, like we're ruled by our emotions. He rules over his emotions. But yeah, God's grieved. This hurts. Though he planned and knew it all and, and, and ruled over all of this, he still feels it. And so does Samuel. And so at the end of verse 11, and Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, for whom or what was he crying about? And he was he angry about it? Was he angry at God? Was he angry at Saul? Was he angry about this resulting situation? Is he plead, like, what's he pleading for all night? Is he pleading for Saul, seeking forgiveness for him? Is he pleading for Israel, seeking protection for her? Is he praying in, you know, for himself, seeking endurance for the coming confrontation? Probably bits of all of this. But here's the thing I want you to see. In verse 12, you're going to see it. He obeys. Though he doesn't understand it totally, he didn't totally get it, he still obeys. And it was potentially costly to him. It is not self-serving selective obedience here. This is God-serving complete obedience. And so verse 12, he goes to confront. Look at verse 12. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold... He set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? I mean, if we had any hope for Saul, at this point, it's pretty much dashed. In the midst of his disobedience, he goes and he sets up a monument to himself. And then he walks up to Samuel, eagerly anticipating some praise from this prophet and said, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, you see, it's ridiculous here. How, how ridiculous this is. His claim is about obedience. It's like a dude in Colorado who has a little bit of a slurred speech, a case of the munchies, and is wearing a shirt that says 420 for life. And he's like, I didn't have you married, Joanna. 
Dude, the evidence is all around you. Saul, we can hear the cows mooing. We can hear the sheep buying. Something like that. It's all around you. The evidence is clear. But friends, this is what sin does to us. It hardens our hearts and blinds us to our wrongs. And that's the second thing we need to be aware of this morning. We need to beware of sin's power to harden our hearts and blind us to our wrongs. Beware of sin's power to harden our hearts and blind us to our wrongs. I mean, sin does this. It does this in my life. It does this in your life. If you don't, you know, if you don't think that you might be blind to some sinfulness, you don't, you don't think that's a possibility for you, then your pride and wickedness is on Saul level. And you need to be careful. Sin hardens our hearts. And this is one of the reasons you need good godly people around you in your lives walking in community. Because we're blind. We can't see it in ourselves. And you need someone who loves you enough to look you in the eye and say, brother or sister, I don't know, but I'm kind of concerned. Maybe this, can we talk about that? And help pull the scales from your eyes and help you to see what maybe you've been blind to. How you've run from God. Friends, be humble enough to admit that there might be sin residing... Let me rephrase that. Be humble enough to admit that there is sin residing in your heart that you are blind to. That's true of every single one of us in here. And so may the Lord open our eyes to it that we might repent and turn and change. But when Samuel speaks into Saul's life here, he, he doesn't open his eyes and repent. What does Saul do? He blames others. Look at verse 14. I mean, very Adam and Eve right here. Look at verse 14. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Again, the evidence is all around you. So Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And so Samuel confronts, Saul makes excuses. What about you and I? When God convicts us of sin, like are are we experts in explaining away our sin? Are we experts in justifying our sin? Well, everybody does it. It's not that big of a deal. At least I'm not as bad as that guy over there. And you are fighting against yourself and your family and your friends when you live with that kind of attitude. Humble yourself to receive correction. And seek it out. We're so often blind to our wrongs. Back to the text, verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, or you once were, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Are you not the king? 
The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've got, look, he's making excuses, self-serving, selective obedience. And now he's got this like he's blinded to his own wrongs. He can't even see it. He's defending. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, uh, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. And so this is a bam, drop mic, walk off stage moment. Samuel has just dropped the hammer. And Saul's been making all of these excuses. Well, it was the people who made me do it. And then, well, actually, we were, what we were going to do is we were going to use the animals to sacrifice to the Lord your God. So it's actually okay that I disobey because I had a good heart in it. Friends, it's, that's not the way it works. But Samuel sees through these devices and is like, No. The Lord is not after sacrifice. He called you to obedience. And so folks, in here, should we gather in here and sing songs? And, and take offerings and sacrifices of our heart? And to, absolutely. Yes, we should. But those are outflows of what God wants most. Because what God wants most is your heart. All of it. What God wants most is not religious activity, but our hearts. A surrendered heart is what thrills God. The alternative to full surrender is rebellion. But we're so blind we don't see it. Or if we do, we don't see the depths of it. Because look at verse 23. For rebellion... Alright, so sin... Disobeying God is as the sin of divination. In other words, rebellion is the same thing as worshiping the devil. Because the common denominator, think about it, the common denominator in any act of disobedience is Satan himself. I mean, what is Satan's sin after all? What did he do? He wanted to be his own God and his own authority. And so when we, you know, God says one thing to us and we say, you know what, I think I'll consult someone else myself and see if that's what I want to do. 
And we're doing exactly what Satan did. We're being our own authority and our own God. And the reason it's such a big deal is not just because of like the actions we then carry out. But sin is not just wicked because of what a person does, but even more so because of the authority of the one we reject. And so Samuel says to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. That's what makes sin bad. We reject the God of the universe, the Almighty, the sinless Savior slain for our sins. I think we forget sometimes that God is God. He's God. If I'm a co-pilot, if you're your co-pilot, change seats. He's your pilot. He's your God. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king, he says to Saul. And so Saul was his own God. Saul was his real God. In practice, he had dethroned the Lord in his heart. And he sat on the throne. And so again, what about me and you? I'm sure there are areas in our life where, yep, I'm obeying the Lord in this. He's on the throne. But then it comes over here to other areas. And we're like, yeah, I'll be on the throne here. I can do better than you guys. Self-serving, selective obedience again. Who rules your life? You or God? And I know we're going to slip and fall, and there's grace, plenteous grace. The ocean would be drained if it was filled with ink. I mean, God's love is huge. But if you're seeking to live for Him, who are you? Like, are you seeking that? If you could think with clarity for just a moment, who would do a better job of ruling your life? You or God? And so why do we so often live with this self-selective, self-serving, selective obedience? Oh, to God that we would be able to see ourselves rightly and beware of sin's power to harden our hearts and blind us to our wrongs. And so the question then after Saul, Samuel drops his hammer is what, how will Saul respond? Because for as much as he's lost, he still has this chance to repent and hear God's voice and it's the same in our lives. For as much as you, know, you and I may have strayed from God, we've gotten away from Him, we've walked away, we've turned away, maybe for a short amount of time, maybe for a long amount of time, whatever, we have this same opportunity to turn to God, to come clean before God, confess our sins, repent, turn, excuse me, turn away from them and turn back to God. But sadly, Saul doesn't do that. And he continues his hell-bent path to destruction and ruin. Look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. So far, so good. This looks great. 
He's acknowledging his sinfulness. He's acknowledging that, that, God, that, that God is small to him and people are really, really big to him. And he fears people more than he fears God. Verse 26, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And this is very visual right here. Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. We'll meet him next week as a shepherd boy. His name is David. And David's not perfect. But David is someone who knows how to repent. And he points to one who is perfect. King Jesus. Verse 29. And also, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord, your God, my God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. And so again, verse 24, he starts off really good here. I mean, this was way to go, Saul. This is a great example of repentance. Thank you so much. You've admitted that you've sinned and you look repentant. But as we keep reading, we see phony, fraud, fake, superficial repentance. We know that for one because we have the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. And he continues with this same sinful attitude and rebellion against God the whole rest of the time. All right? So if repentance is true, it results in a change. If there is no change, there's been no real repentance. You will change. Maybe not instantly, but there will be change that happens. You turn from your repentance means turning from your sin. This is what it means. And turning to God. Change happens when you turn. But then secondly, and just right here in our text, we don't even have to go forward. We know that it's a phony and a fraud and fake and superficial. Because in verse 30, his motives come out. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel. And so he's not concerned ultimately with God. He wants the esteem of people. And so he repents only so far as it serves his desires. And friends, that's the third thing that we need to be aware of this morning. Beware of self-serving, superficial repentance. Beware of self-serving, superficial repentance. My soul's not concerned with God here. He's like the person, kid or adult, who gets caught doing something. And they're sorry... That they got caught. They're sorry for the consequences of and the fallout of what they did, but they're not really sorry for actually doing it. And so they'll play the part, though. They'll say the right things to minimize the fallout, but their hearts are just as far from God as they ever were. 
Friends, that is you, brother, sister. Open your eyes. You are in danger. Spirit, invade their heart and open their eyes. Friends, don't run from repentance. Seek it out. Even when your sin finds you out so often, that is a gift of grace to, from God to you. Saying, open your eyes, turn. This is not the way for you. This is not the way you want to go. I love you enough to allow this in your, ha- in your life. And it may be bitter for a minute, but sweet will be the flower. Turn. Don't spurn God's leading you to repentance. But Saul here, yeah, he's just got this self-serving, superficial repentance because he's still concerned about his status before the people. That's his God. Not the God of the universe. And so what about you? Who do you fear most? Who do I fear most? People? People's opinions? What people think about me? What people might say about me? Or God? Who do you fear the most? Who do you long to please the most? And I do not want you to give me a Sunday school answer here, God. Let the Spirit do some heart probing and maybe some heart surgery for a minute. Who do you fear most? When you look at your life and you look at your choices and you look at your actions, God or people? Whose voice do you listen to? The voice of the Lord or the voice of people? The glory of God and your own good. Fear God. Stop making excuses and superficial repentance. I mean, for sure, the Christian faith is not a religion for people who do not sin. Praise the Lord for that truth. We sin and there's grace. So the Christian faith is for sure not a religion for people who do not sin. But friends, it's also not a religion for people who do not repent. Martin Luther, the great reformer, repentance is life. It's all of life. Repentance is all of life. Stay in old school. John Bunyan, the English Puritan who authored Pilgrim's Progress, which if you haven't read, read. It's like should be on the like required reading list for a Christian. Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. But he said this, the difference between true and false repentance lies in this. The man who truly repents cries out against his heart, but the other, as Eve, against the serpent or someone else. Beware of self-serving, superficial repentance. Let's finish this story before I get fired for being too late. But they sang extra long today. (laughs) I just totally threw Chad under the bus. I am sorry, brother. (laughs) Look at verse 32, though. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. It's almost like Agag thinks, hey, we may be able to work a deal here. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Right? He's thinking he's going to make a deal. But verse 33, and Samuel said, as your sword, because remember, he is a war criminal, 
as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So I can't help it, but I just think Braveheart here. I think, you know, riding into the house, into the chambers, and he, he's on his horse, and this dude's in his bed, and the dude wakes up, and he just drops the ball and chain, and then whips it around, and the guy's face implodes. That's what I, like, picture here is, and this may be, the, he's a prophet. This may be the first time he's ever picked up a sword. And so this is not him, like, just going off, and, oh, I'm frustrated at Saul, and all this stuff. No, 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 he's actually fulfilling what the Lord has said here. Crazy as that is, there is justice, there is judgment. This is one of those gory passages of Scripture that doesn't make it in your precious moments, Bible. Verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted, grieved, that he had made Saul king over Israel. Again, not grieved over his choice of Saul, but grieved over Saul's choice of sin and disobedience. And these verses here, they tell more than just geography. They tell tragedy. The words communion with Saul as a king through the prophet is broken. No more direction for Saul because it comes through God's word. God's word is delivered through the prophet. The prophet is not with him anymore, nor will he ever be. So there's no more counsel. There's no more commands. There's no more encouragement without God's prophet. Saul is without God's word. An unbearable silence, and he will continue to spiral out of control to his demise. Friends, while it may be too late for Saul, it's not too late for us. We may live our lives with self-serving, selective obedience, and we may be blind to our wrongs because our hearts have been hardened by sin, and we have lived lives of self-serving, superficial repentance. But today can be the day that that ends. That if you will come clean before the Lord and you will repent, he will t take you to himself. If you will arise and go to Jesus, he will wrap you in his arms. He holds out a gift to you. See, the whole problem here, like, we can't, just as Saul wasn't. Like, we're not going to be obedient perfectly. We are going to blow it. And we are, therefore, deserving of the same wrath that the Amalekites got. And that Saul gets. But that's what Hebrews 10 was all about. Jesus came and he was obedient for us. He fulfills all the requirements of God's justice and righteousness. And so while we don't merit God's love, Christ does And he gives us his merits if we will take them. If we will repent and believe. And he gave his life on the cross to die for our sins. So that if we will just take him at his word, 
repent and believe and turn to him in true repentance, not superficial, in true faith, not expecting us to be perfect, but pursuing him, then he will forgive our sins and the judge will strike the gavel, not guilty, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Jesus done. And then the judge climbs over the desk, turns around and adopts us into his family and is our father in heaven who is for us and with us and loves us. This, this is the good news. This is the great news of the gospel. There is forgiveness and hope and freedom and it's never too late for us. And so whether you are a Christian this morning and you're kind of opening your eyes to, man, I have lived this self-serving, selective obedience. And I, I've been blind to it, but God's opening my eyes and just superficially repented in the past because I want my idols. I don't want God. There is hope for you. Come clean today. Repent and turn back to God. And if you're not yet a Christian, and you're recognizing your sinfulness and that you don't, you can't merit God's grace. Again, he's holding out good news to you. It is good news that Jesus has come and lived perfectly obeying, paying for our sins, the wrath we deserve, rising again, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand, making intercession for us now and pushing us. in a way that would glorify the Lord and be good for us. And so turn. Turn to Him. And be freed from your anxiety. Be freed from dissatisfaction, from insecurity and fear because you know now that you are living a life for whose opinion actually matters the most. And when you live for God, all those things go away because it doesn't matter what people think. It matters what God thinks. And so by the Spirit of God, let us beware of these things and put an end to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your continued grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And Father, we know that the faith that you want, the obedience that you want from us is obedience of faith, that we trust in you. We don't trust in ourselves to be perfect. We don't trust in ourselves. We don't have to get it right 100%. But we pursue you and we trust by faith that Christ was good enough for us. He was perfect. And our hope is in that. Our hope is in Christ. Not in our actions. Not in our obedience. Our hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Help us to place all of our hope in Christ, not ourselves. For we make lousy gods, but you, O oh God, are glorious. In Christ's name, amen.